Mark 1, 14, 15. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Matthew 6, 10. Your kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Acts 17, 6 through 7. And when they could not find Paul and Silas, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. Amen. I think those were probably the cutest Bible readers we've had recently, but I might be biased. I'll just start off by saying the elders didn't tell me that they were going to do a recognition this morning, so thank you, elders, thank you, congregation, thank you for... Thank you for your love and thank you for the, um, the honor and the privilege of being able to serve here amongst you. Um, it, has been, it has been quite a year, I think, for all of us. But friends, if nothing else, we have certainly learned the truth of the hymn that we just sung. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. And we've stood upon him through the storms, and we'll continue to stand upon him, for he is secure. And we remember the very last line of that hymn, the very one that we're going to be discussing today. Friends, his kingdom is forever. And so we are secure. But speaking of kingdoms, we have uh, some kingdoms to consider because who should I vote for on Tuesday? Who should I vote for on Tuesday? In a confusing, divisive, and emotionally charged political season, people ask me all the time, Pastor Adam, who should I vote for? And friends, the good news this morning, I am here to tell you. I'm here to tell you who you should vote for. In this presidential election, I'm going to vote for the same team you might remember that I voted for in the 2016 election. Colstrom and Stupka 2020, make America great coffee again. Just write us in, in the write-in space, and add your vote to mine. <laughs> but seriously, okay, we can take that off the screen. We don't need to see that anymore. Who I should vote for on Tuesday? Well, friends, clearly that has been a question with which we've all been wrestling and with which we've watched other people wrestle. You know, the Barna Research Group, they, they did some research earlier this year that showed that not only people out there, but people within the church are wrestling far more with politics since the 2016 election season. 48% of practicing Christians said that they were struggling more and thinking more and discussing more about politics and choices this season than they did in 2016. It seems like everybody is talking about it and everybody's got an opinion. Who should you vote for? We hear opinions from everyone. We've heard pros and cons endlessly debated on the news and on social media and amongst friends. One candidate passionately defended, the other candidate passionately demonized. And we've heard many people who are pledging to vote not for any candidate, but simply to vote against the other candidate. Well, church, it's Sunday. But Tuesday is coming. And so what do we do? Today, the Sunday before the election, is a day for perspective. 
And church, our perspective needs to be formed by the gospel. Our perspective needs to be formed by the gospel. Now, some of you might immediately object and say, hold on, there are two things that you never discuss in polite company, politics and religion. And even worse, to bring the two of them together. Friends, the gospel, can we mix the gospel with the political? Well, friends, I'm here to argue that at its very heart, the gospel is political. At its very heart, the gospel, the good news, is political. Gospel means good news, and we find that the good news is political news. You see, the the gospel, the good news, is political news in the same way that all of our imagined epic stories are political. Robin Hood, the Chronicles of Narnia, the Lord of the Rings, in all of those stories, people are oppressed by a dark kingdom and they longingly await the coming of the rightful king. And when the rightful king comes, whether that king be King Richard, Aslan, or Isildur's heir, that king will come and fight the decisive battle, overthrow the usurper's dark kingdom, and bring his own kingdom. And church, that's the same message of the gospel. Those stories resonate so much in our hearts because that is the story that we read in the gospel. The good news, the gospel, is that the rightful king has come. He has come and he has fought the decisive battle. His kingdom has come. When we read the Gospels, we find that Jesus constantly announced, and from the very beginning, when he came, the kingdom had come. The very first words of Jesus that Mark recorded for us in his Gospel, that Hannah read for us, Mark chapter 1, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming what? The Gospel. And what was the Gospel? The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Jesus says the gospel, the good news, is political news. The kingdom of God is at hand. The rightful king has come. In fact, if you read the gospels all the way through, all four of the gospels, you find the word kingdom is used 126 times. Half of Jesus' parables were about the kingdom. Jesus often said, the kingdom of God is like. And then he told a story, a parable, to try to explain to us this idea of what it means that his kingdom is come. And when Jesus sent out his disciples to preach the gospel in Luke chapter 10, what was the message he sent them with? Luke 10, 9. Heal the sick and then say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. The kingdom of God has come near. And then when his disciples said, well, Jesus, teach us how to pray. Jesus taught them to pray. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The gospel, the good news, is news about the kingdom come. With his coming, the kingdom of God has come near. Jesus, with Jesus' kingdom, his reign has arrived. It's not yet here in its fullness. But make no mistake. The kingdom of God is here. And just as in all of our great myths, the rightful king has come. Jesus is the king, the true king. And this is no myth. The true king has come promised from the line of King David himself. He he fought and he won the decisive battle and took his rightful place on David's throne. This was the good news, not only that Jesus proclaimed, but that those who came after him proclaimed. The Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy 2.8 said, 
remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. The good news is that Jesus is the rightful king in the line of David. And with his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead, the decisive battle has been fought and won. And with his resurrection from the dead and his ascension to heaven, he's been seated to reign at the right hand of God the Father. In his letter to the Ephesians, Paul celebrates this in chapter 1, verses 20 through 23. He writes, God raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet. Friends, the gospel, the good news is that the true king from the line of the tribe of Judah, King David's royal line, has come And like the lamb, he died sacrificing himself to win the decisive battle. And like a lion, Jesus rose on the third day, royal and victorious. And with his victory, he's been seated at the right hand of God the Father, above all rule and earthly authority and power and dominion. He's been given the name that is above every other name. His kingdom is come. And that's what we celebrated when we opened the service. Joy to the world is not just some Christmas hymn. Joy to the world is a celebration of the reign of Jesus Christ. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. So let earth receive her king. Joy to the world, the Savior reigns here and now. Let all their songs employ. He is come. He reigns. But one day, one day, friends, we know that he will return and his kingdom will come perfectly, completely. As we also sang this morning of that day when we sang, You're the Lion of Judah, the Lamb that was slain. You ascended to heaven and evermore will reign. And at the end of the age, when the earth you reclaim, you'll gather the nations before you. And friends, at that time, the angels will cry, Hail the Lamb, who is slain for the world, rule and power. And the earth will reply, You shall reign as the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords. These are the words that we find in Revelation chapter 17, verse 14, the very last book in the Bible. Revelation 17, 14 says, They will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them, for for He is Lord of lords and King of kings. One day, all kingdoms and powers that stand opposed to the kingdom of the Lamb will be conquered. The kingdom of the Lamb will come in its fullness and perfection. But friends, make no mistake, until that day, Jesus' kingdom is already here. It has come, just not yet, in its fullness. When He returns, it will come in its fullness. But right now, He still reigns as the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords. The gospel, the good news, is political because the gospel is that Jesus is Lord. And if Jesus is Lord, then no other power is over Him. He is Lord. The good news is political news. And now as an aside, you might ask, okay, or Adam, if the empty tomb means victory, and if His ascension means that He's sitting at the right hand of God and He's reigning, if the good news is that the kingdom of God is already here, and our God reigns, then why doesn't this reigning Christ just right now come, crush all evil and rebellion, and wipe out sin in this world? Why do we have to endure this? Why do we have to endure 2020? 
You know, Christian author C.S. Lewis also wrestled with this. And in his book, Mere Christianity, he wrestled with it, and I think his, his answer is worth sharing. He said, Why is God landing in this enemy-occupied world in disguise and starting a sort of secret society to undermine the devil? Why isn't he just landing in force and invading it? Is he not strong enough? Well, Christians think he is going to land here in force. But we do not know when. But we can guess why he's delaying. He wants to give us the chance of joining his side freely. Now, today, this moment, it is our chance to choose the right side. God is holding back to give us that chance. It will not last forever. We must take or leave it. Friends, why does he just not return and make all things new and wipe away all the pain and the sickness and the death that we see? Friends, he holds back. And why? To give us a chance. A chance to right now willingly come into his kingdom under his rule. To, to lay down our weapons. To let our rebellion end that we might join His side freely and find salvation. Friends, that's the Gospel. The good news, whether you're here with us today physically or joining us online, if you never have, today is the day to choose the right side for the rightful King has come and He comes offering peace. He comes offering reconciliation. He comes offering that your rebellion might end, that the price of your treason might be paid by Him and His death. And He welcomes you into His kingdom under His reign as His subjects now and forevermore. Jesus holds off on His return the consummation of His kingdom and the final judgment simply to give time. But friends, the time will not last forever. Today is the day. Now is the moment. Now is your chance to choose. God is holding back for the sake of you choosing His side freely. The true King has come, bringing His kingdom and freedom. And He invites you to join and to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead. And you will be saved. What stops you? What stops you from confessing Him as Savior and Lord? So church, from all of this, what do we see? We see that the good news is political news. Because if the true king has come, it challenges every other king in this world. A new kingdom challenges every other kingdom. A new power calls into question every other power. The very political nature of the gospel was recognized by the first hearers of the gospel. You know, Abigail read for us from Acts chapter 17. When they got in trouble in Thessalonica, this is how their enemies summarized Paul and Silas's message. These men who have turned this world upside down have come here also, and Jason's received them, and they're acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king. Jesus. There is another king. If there's another king, then that does threaten to turn everything upside down. Because, friends, if there's another king, then that threatens the power of Caesar and every other earthly king. Another kingdom challenges our allegiance to all the kingdoms of this world. Another authority questions the legitimacy of the existing authorities of this world. The world surrounding the early church heard the good news as political news. There's another king. If Jesus is Lord, then Caesar is not. 
And another king threatens to turn everything upside down. Not just in our lives, but in this world. The early church itself understood the gospel had a political dimension. One commentator noted that early Christians, they used the word ecclesia, which we translate in the New Testament as church. But ecclesia was a term used for the assembly governing Greek city-states. It was a political term. And it highlights how the early church understood itself as a political body. This commentator says, but this strange new Christian assembly proclaimed they were citizens of a different kingdom with a different king. The church, the called out ones, are citizens of a different kingdom, of a different king. Church, if the gospel is that a new king has come with a new kingdom, then even while we might still live in this world, we've become citizens of a different kingdom with a different king. And what does that look like? What does that look like for us today? Well, let's hear what it looks like in the early church. In the third century, we have a third century text, a letter, that was written by an early Christian, and this is how he described followers of Jesus. They dwell in their own countries, but simply as sojourners. As citizens, they share in all the things with others, and yet they endure all things as if foreigners. They obey the prescribed laws, and at the same time, they surpass the laws by their lives. They love all men and women and are persecuted by all. They're reviled and they bless. They're insulted and they repay insult with honor. The Christians in the early church, they dwelt in their own countries, but yet as sojourners. As citizens and yet as foreigners. We remain citizens of the earthly countries in which we live. But the gospel is unquestionably political. And so, friends, our most important citizenship, our highest allegiance is not to any kingdom of this world, but to the kingdom of the Lamb. Our allegiance and obedience to the kingdoms of this world are always qualified by our allegiance and obedience to the kingdom of the Lamb. As the Apostle Peter wrote in 1 Peter 2.17, Fear God, honor the emperor. Fear God, honor the emperor. In that order. Fear God above honoring any earthly power. Our allegiance to the kingdom of the Lamb comes above any other kingdom. So church... As we face a contentious election, we might ask the question, what does the kingdom of the elephant and the kingdom of the donkey have to do with the kingdom of the lamb? Which kingdom will we serve? Because neither one of these kingdoms of the elephant or the donkey perfectly contains the kingdom of the lamb. In late September of this year, Pastor Tim Keller of Redeemer Presbyterian Church republished an op-ed for the New York Times. The title, How Do Christians Fit Into a Two-Party System? And his answer, they don't. Keller argues that neither the kingdom of the elephant nor the kingdom of the donkey can contain the kingdom of the land. God is not exclusively on either side of the aisle. So the question is, Are we on his side? Some of you might remember in the book of Joshua in chapter 5, as Joshua, the leader of the people of God, was standing by Jericho, he saw a great warrior approaching him with sword drawn, and Joshua said, Are you for us or for our adversaries? 
And this man, who was no mere man, replied, No, but I come as the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. Joshua said, Hey, whose side are you on? Are you on Israel or Jericho's side? And he said, Neither. The question is, are you on my side? The question is, are you on my side? And today, as we approach God and we say, whose side are you on, the Republicans or the Democrats? God replies, neither. The question is, who's on my side? If you ask God, who's he endorsing for president in the 2020 election, Trump or Biden? God would tell you, none of the below. None of the below because Christ is above all. Christ has been given the name that is far above every rule and authority and dominion and power, far above every name that's been named, far above our human systems, ideologies, political parties and nations, and none can contain him. God does not align himself with human politics and power. Friends, the true king has come and we have to align ourselves with him. And our allegiance to the kingdom of the Lamb challenges any wholehearted allegiance to either the kingdom of the donkey or the elephant. Because, friends, long after the kingdom of America has crumbled and it's just a footnote in the annals of history, long after the kingdom of the elephant and the donkey have ceased to be, the kingdom of the Lamb will stand. As we sang at the end of a mighty fortress, His kingdom is forever. Church, we need to remember Jesus did not come and die to save America. Jesus did not come and die to save America. Jesus came and died to redeem for himself a people. A people from America and from Iraq and from Sudan and from France and from Brazil and from China and from Australia, from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Jesus came to establish no kingdom forever except his own kingdom. The good news is political news. There is another king, and it's an eternal kingdom. Jesus is Lord. And so the psalmist sings to us in Psalm 146, verse 3, Put not your trust in princes and the Son of Man, in whom there is no salvation. Our ultimate hope is not in presidents or princes, Not in those whose limited kingdoms will one day crumble. Church, there never has been a Savior up on Capitol Hill. And there never will be. So don't place your hope there. Rather, the Apostle Paul has offered some good words about politics to the church in Ephesus. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, he wrote, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. And friends, that's an amazing command. That's an amazing command because the rulers in Paul and Timothy and Titus' day, they were, in the words of theologian John Calvin, enemies of the gospel, persecutors of the poor Christians, murderers, and wicked men. Pray for them. There was no such thing as a Christian king or ruler. In fact, Paul wrote this, and the reigning emperor when he wrote this was Nero, whose hostility towards the followers of Christ was widely known. And Paul said, pray. Pray for the pagan emperor. 
You know, the one who's persecuting Christians and attacking the church makes supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings for him. Friends, Paul was able to write that because he understood the gospel. That no matter who becomes our next president, we are able to offer supplications, prayers, intercessions, and even thanksgivings for him because Jesus is greater. Prayer is more powerful than politics. But do we believe that? Do we believe that the kingdom of the Lamb is more powerful than the kingdom of the elephant or the donkey? Proverbs reminds us, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. God is sovereign over kings and nations and powers, whatever political party with which which they're aligned. Whether or not they wish to accomplish his purposes and will, God's purposes will prevail. His kingdom alone is forever. And friends, this startled me as we were praying together for this election in our nation last Wednesday evening. Because we regularly pray that God would replace people who are in seats of power with other people in those seats of power. But maybe we should spend more time praying that God would redeem the people in the seats of power rather than replace them. Do we believe the gospel is that powerful? Maybe we're praying too small when we think the only thing we can pray for is that God will replace them. Maybe we should be praying that God will redeem them and reconcile them. Maybe the gospel is powerful enough Do we believe that His kingdom is greater and more powerful? That prayer is greater than politics? Now, church, I say all this, and none of it is to say you shouldn't go vote on Tuesday for the candidate that you believe will act in the best interest of the common good and promote justice and restrain evil. Because in our country at this time, we have something that the biblical writers had no concept of. We're part of a participatory democracy. Unlike the early church, we don't just have to endure our rulers. We actually get to influence elections and choose our presidents. And friends, we have a right to vote and an opportunity to make a difference. And even while you do so, church, do not put your ultimate hope in the kingdom of this world. We should not minimize or neglect the opportunity we have to influence and imbue the kingdoms of this world with the values of the Lamb. But friends, we vote remembering the gospel, that while politics influence people, only through prayers will God will people be transformed. Politics can influence, prayers can transform. Politics can change behaviors, but prayer might change a heart, which will ultimately change a behavior. And this Tuesday, politics, friends, is going to bring us a new president, but only prayer is going to bring us what we really need which is a revival. The good news is political news, that whoever is president, Jesus is still Lord. As of the end of the day, Tuesday, whoever is our president, Jesus is still Lord. This is the gospel. And church, as citizens of the kingdom of the Lamb, our ultimate hope is not in any president or politics. But let, So let that affect not only how we vote, but... Maybe we should let that truth affect how we interact with those who are going to vote differently from us. There's been a little bit of contention around this election. 
But if our hope and our security are in Christ, then, friends, we're freed to respond to others not with fear and not with animosity, but with grace. You know, Paul wrote to Titus that in light of the gospel, he says in Titus 3, verses 1 and 2, remind the church to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, and to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy toward all people, just like we do all the time on Facebook. Friends, if I put my hope in politics to save me or to deliver me, then when anyone who disagrees and threatens my hope, I'm going to get angry, won't I? Because you're threatening my hope by, by electing that candidate, by voting for him. You're threatening my hope because my hope is in this candidate. If I don't get this candidate, it's all going to fall apart. Armageddon's coming. But friends, if our hope is in Jesus Christ, and we say it doesn't matter. Because you know what? This kingdom is more powerful than this kingdom. This kingdom is going to last forever. These kingdoms are going to pass. And this is where my hope is. Then we're freed up to respond, not in fear and not in anger to those who disagree with us and who vote differently from us. The gospel gives us confidence to respond in love. Because church, it's Sunday, but Tuesday's coming. And so as we go to the polls to vote on Tuesday, let us remember the gospel of the kingdom. And let's heed the advice of John Wesley, who is the founder of the Methodist Church. Wesley wrote in his journal on Thursday, October 6th, 1774, I met those of our society who had votes in the ensuing election, and I advised them, one, to vote without fee or reward for the person they judged most worthy. Two, to speak no evil of the person they voted against. Should we read that one again? To speak no evil of the person they voted against. And three, to take care their spirits were not sharpened against those that voted on the other side. That's good advice. Because that's gospel advice. Church, the good news is political news. So let your politics your vote, your interactions with others all be shaped by the good news that no matter who is in office at the end of the day on Tuesday, Jesus is Lord. And let's pray. Father, give us gospel confidence and hope. Hope not in the kingdoms of this world, but in your kingdom which is forever. In the name of the powerful, risen, and reigning Christ, we pray. Amen. And friends, we come now to the Lord's table, a table that reminds us of our unity, a table that reminds us that we, who are different and diverse and will vote in different and diverse ways on Tuesday, are one. A table prepared for us by Jesus Christ with his death and with his resurrection. If the elders would come forward for the serving. We remember the words of the Apostle Paul who wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. For I received from the Lord what also I delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus in the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. 
Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after, cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Friends, we remember, we celebrate, and we proclaim the kingdom. Jesus' kingdom, not any earthly kingdom. His kingdom, which is forever. And if you, by faith, have believed in your heart that God raised Him from the dead and confessed with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, we invite you, whether you're a member, regular attender, or just a visitor, to join us as we receive this meal. As we celebrate His coming, we anticipate His one-day return. And together we feast as citizens of His kingdom. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, that he fought the decisive battle, that he rose victorious from that battle, and now he is seated at your right hand, reigning. Father, make us a people faithful, faithful to follow, faithful to proclaim, faithful to live, that this world might see, hear, and know that Jesus is Lord. Amen.